0: This week's Addiction Professionals in the Pandemic interview was done for us by Chris Budnick. He interviewed Jude johnson Hostler who specializes in working with moms and children affected by alcohol and other drugs. I enjoyed it a lot. I learned quite a bit. I hope you enjoy it as well. So thank you. Um, I'm Chris Budnick, and our first question is, Jude, who are you?
1: Well, um, I I will first start by saying I'm a woman in long-term recovery, and what that means is that I haven't found a reason since June the 13th, 1991 to use any substance, and I'm a a mom, a grandmother, a wife, Um, uh, I'm a therapist, I work in the field, and um, what else? Oh, I'm a minister. I won't, I don't want to leave that out. And I'm a life coach.
0: Fantastic. What do you do professionally?
1: So professionally, I work for, with uh, women and children and I serve as a coordinator for the Perinatal Substance Use Project um, with the Alcohol Drug Council of North Carolina and i serve as a consultant for the division of mental health development disabilities and substance abuse services and also public health the women's health branch that's one position and so what i do with them is that i do um, capacity management to make sure that the programs are reporting their uh, weekly beds and that I compile those numbers into a report that goes out to over 600 people in the state of North Carolina. Um, I do technical assistance around uh, gender responsive treatment. And um, I have a, also a private practice. So I see um, clients, now it's virtual, virtual, but I see them in my office in Holly Springs when I'm seeing clients in person. So that's what I do professionally. And I work, um, also I do some work, some ministerial work at Victoria's Praise in North Carolina. I'm the, um, uh, a part of the ministerial staff there.
0: And we've been fortunate Healing Transitions to have you do some mentoring for our staff.
1: Yes, and I love it. It's been such a great experience.
0: So you already Thank. mentioned that uh, you've been in recovery since June 13th, 1991. Um, do you have any additional um, experience that you'd want to share about your uh, addiction and recovery?
1: Well, you know what, the one thing I will say, Chris, is that um, when it comes to recovery, you know, like some, I, I, you know, some people have the idea that you know, things are going to be perfect once you come into recovery. That is not the case. This, it's going to continue. Life happens. That's the bottom line. It rains on the just and unjust. So that means that things are always going to be going on and it's up to you to personally take care of your recovery. And as I would say, especially for people that work in the field, very often people come in the field, might have their own personal experiences with addiction or Personal um, experiences that needed counseling, and they think, "Well, I want to be able to give this back." And that if they come in and they help other people, that that will help them. It may help you a little bit, but the bottom line is your uh, personal work that you do for yourself is what stands. I mean, you you do your clients and anyone that you work with, if you don't take care of your own personal recovery, it's just like when you get on the plane and you see the air, um, the stewardess say, put the mask on yourself first. So if you don't have that mask on yourself first, you can't help those that you serve. So I think that is very important to know. Uh,
0: The next question is, tell us about your professional experience in the area of addiction recovery. And you spoke um, about what you do professionally, but maybe you could get into a little more detail about one aspect of the work that you've done and what's been meaningful about it.
1: Okay, so I've been in the, um, working in this field for two decades over two decades and so when I initially started um, I used to be a uh, work as a lab technician so I initially started um, volunteering as a part again get trying to help my own recovery so I started with teenagers because I was very young when I came into recovery and um, started with teenagers that, you know, that worked for a little while for me, but that just wasn't my fit. Um, Then I worked with, um, in a halfway house with um, men over, I think it was probably over 80 men in this facility. I was nice. I learned a lot there, um, but that just wasn't my fit either. And so I think in uh, 1998, I was a part of um, uh, a major project that was about bringing uh, gender, um, gender responsive care in my area. So I'm from New Jersey and this was the one of the first women's programs and we had an opportunity to do partial care so the partial care was the women was with us all day long and it was an 18-month program um which was very long but you know if you think of it but they needed that 18 months so it was an 18-month program and maybe about over 22 women at the most um two clinicians um and and we had case managers and so that was where i found my love i grew so much myself i was able to really you know be able to pour into those women but also grow myself um emotionally physically and then um i made a decision so i did that work for a long time the program was very successful they were over they were there in place for over 20 years and um so from that i um decided that I, something fell into my lap. It was a, a position and I wasn't qualified for. I didn't have a master's degree at the time, but it was being the coordinator of FASD. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I went in that direction, and that's what it is. It is pretty much the work that I do today. Um, the only difference is it's not specific to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So that allowed me to be able to do public speaking, technical assistance, work specifically um, with the actually the providers that were able to offer those services for the women. So that is the love that i have is you know working with women and so a part of that in my uh, process of working in the um, private practice i have now been working a lot with the children and so i'm not specifically working in addiction i do have some clients that have a diagnosis um, of that particular diagnosis, but it's, um, I, I went back to school, got my uh, graduate degree, and so I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor associate because I'm new to North Carolina, so I, had, I have to get those 3,000 hours. Um, so that's the work I do today, and I absolutely love it. There's, a, um, there's a, definitely a need for someone that has the passion and to show the compassion and the love for the work that we do.
0: What are you most proud of professionally
1: well i i am most proud of that the work with the women i i really i love it it's just um i i never you know some people burn out in this field i haven't because i've had great supervisors that taught me like through supervision that that i have to take care of myself in this work so my what i'm very proud of is that i never allowed. Um, my love for working in counseling um, to, to wear me down, that I really knew and learned that it's important for me to take care of myself in order to be an asset to those that I serve. So I'm, I'm very proud of that, that I've been in this field for over two decades.
0: What keeps you working in addiction and recovery as opposed to something else?
1: Um, well, I would say that uh, one of the things that when I did go back to school, I did want to have that opportunity to um, work more specifically with the children that may have been affected by this or affected by other things like uh, divorce. Um, so I would say continuing to grow in this process, always keeping myself educated, always staying on top of Uh, the next thing you know not not starting uh not keeping myself at a place where i started because things are forever changing when i came to north carolina i had 19 years um, in recovery and i actually had been working in the field at that point for 18 years And so I was on the trajectory of really climbing in my field, people knew me. And so it was like, I came to North Carolina and I felt I had to start completely over. But I'm glad I came in with a mindset of, you know, being open, willing to learn, not coming in as if I knew it all because I had been in the field almost 20 years at that point. So I allowed myself to come in as a sponge. And what I learned was I didn't, I didn't know all that I thought. There was a whole, uh, I, I would say, North Carolina is doing great work when it comes to recovery and uh, not putting down North New Jersey where I was from, but the work was different here. And so um, I am glad that I allowed myself to come in and be open be a student and continue to be at that place where um, I'm willing to be a student not ever getting to the place where I have arrived and so I would say that's what keeps me here it's always growing and changing and we're doing great work um, when it comes to working in the field of addiction being able to um, have at this point at this time now peer support specialists that are able to help the clients that we work with so I would definitely say being able to never allow yourself to get to that place where you feel you have arrived or that you know it all or that the way you got it was the way that every client you serve is going to get recovery because it's
0: not. How has the pandemic affected your work?
1: Chris, I would say it's more busier than ever at this point. There's a, what I I see now is like, um, it seems like a a really heightened, um, uh, like, I don't know if it's an appearance of, it's not an appearance, I mean, because it is present, but there's a mental health is heightened at this point. We're getting, um, the clients that I work with in my daytime job are specific, substance use, you know, so your primary is substance use. And for the women that I work with, um, what we're seeing now is a lot of primary of mental health. Um, They're not able, if your primary is mental health, if you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, then that is your primary diagnosis. And secondary, if you are using, then that would be your secondary, um, any substances. And so we are not able to refer that particular woman to the women's programs, and it's because she doesn't meet the qualifications and might not be able to do what needs to be, you know, she might not be able to keep up with um, the, the groups that are going on, being able to get along with your, um, your her peers and the staff. And so I would say with the pandemic, there has been an increase in mental health. There's definitely been an increase at the Alcohol Drug Council on our calls. Um, there in my private practice, there is an increase in clients that I'm seeing.
0: And what effects of the pandemic are you observing in the people that you serve, particularly women in need of perinatal substance use services?
1: Well, when it comes to um, them being able to uh, access the services, one of the concerns that that you know some of them have, or many of them may have, is that if they're referred to a residential program, are there protocols in place now, some may feel, well, how dare they wonder if there's protocols in place if 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 you know some of them are homeless, if they're homeless and don't have anywhere to go, but they have every right to wonder if there's um COVID protocols in place wonder if they they and their cell se- and their children are going to be safe um they have the right to know that and just because they're using substances doesn't um you know some people will believe that every person that uses substance that they are um neglecting their children or that they um have lost all of their um like humane um, decisions. That's not always the case. And that um, I will say that some of them are concerned about that, but that is in place. All of the programs have, COVID um, protocols in place. We are um, meeting, there's a management team meeting that we meet weekly. Um, my leader, Starling Scott Robbins, is making sure that she stays, um, keep up, keep us abreast of what's going on. And um, so I would say that that's what I see a lot of, but once the women know that they're going to be fine, it's a, it's a, a great resource for them, then they're excited that there are still choices because that's the other thing is that folks are thinking because of COVID that there are no resources available at this time or that they stop taking referrals when that is not the case. We're still taking referrals and it's still, um, there's actually a lot of beds available at this time.
0: What, if any, long-term effects do you anticipate on the field?
1: Well, I, I would say as I said, there's been an increase in mental health. Um, I think even the the how it will affect people socially, you know, when you think of uh people that have connected themselves to 12 step meetings, not having that um in person, um relationships that, that are able to bond as opposed to doing virtual, I think that that will be long-term effect. I believe that financially we're going to see a big change when it comes to um, hotels and restaurants and all of the things. Even when you drive downtown Raleigh, just just what has happened there, I believe that we're going to be seeing years um, of this affecting in our country and our state of North Carolina. So I do believe that will make a difference, and I um, one of the things that I can say that I d- did appreciate is that if this would have happened 10 years ago, we might not have had uh, the platform to be able to um, have Zoom and be able to still do uh, training and still do conferences and see clients. That, that has been good. That's a, that's a nice thing, and I hope that they allow us. I hope that the boards that we work with, the Addiction Board, the, um, uh, well, it used to be the LPC Board, but the Licensed Clinical Mental Health Counselor Board, the Social Worker Boards, I hope that this is something that is here to stay. The virtual the option to have um, virtual clients, because if you think about it, we've had clients um, that are in rural areas that are unable to access services, and they're able to do it now.
0: That, that kind of, you know, goes nicely into the next question about any benefits or new opportunities in the pandemic. So, anything additional to add to that?
1: I would just say that I am hope I put my plug in at the board, um, sent the email at my board and i'm hoping that that is something that stays i think um even when you speak to the programs that have uh the clients that have been able to access meetings or access um groups via virtually they loved it (laughs) and so um you know because you got your people that are um have issues with social anxiety issues so they might not even come out and say well, I don't wanna go to the meeting because I'm uncomfortable with being around people. And it just gives them that opportunity to take away uh, that fear of facing someone head on, especially when you're at a place where you're pretty vulnerable right now. So I think that is something that's been nice. Um, I I believe it's gonna be here to stay because we did see, I have um, a women's conference that I participate in every year in Asheville, you know of, of it. And so we had to, it's every May, I was really upset that we couldn't go this year, and I remember a few years ago when I first started participating in that conference um it was at uh Canoga, which is a lake in I think it's Hendersonville, and so many people you know were very upset about us not being at Canoga when we moved it to Asheville to Um, the uh, mayhack, but it was easier for us to um, uh, maintain and work on the conference there for the people that were part of the conference planning committee. So we went through that transition and and what we seen was little bit by little, our numbers started coming back up because we did lose quite a few because people wanted that place to be able to come to the uh, campgrounds and unplug. So when this happened, in uh, our conference was canceled it was almost like that same kind of feeling wow the conference has been canceled and so I remember that week I was in um, I was really you know mourning not being there because I look forward to it and so that um, day I had a training and the training was with I don't know if it was actually it was with um, Blue Ridge first at Blue Ridge so that you know they're out of Asheville and so when I got on the conference one of the things I seen was a couple of the women from the women's conference and that allowed me to plug in be present and participate in some of the, um, like they did some different breathing exercises. So that allowed me to plug into that and participate. And so once we had our women's conference in September, it was successful. I mean, we didn't think, you know, we kind of felt like, wow, how's this gonna go off? But it did, it went off and it was a successful conference. And so I um, hope that as time moves moves on and we're putting things back into place, that we will allow virtual um, platforms to be a part of what we do.
0: If you were able to work on a fantasy project to improve treatment and recovery support, what would it be?
1: You know what I would say, Chris? I I would say, an opportunity to help those women that have that primary mental health diagnosis because okay imagine you're getting a call from you know five six seven eight women that have mental health primary but they're pregnant and they're using substances but we have no resources for them what do we do i mean even if we find um, a way to put them in um, maybe Walter B. Jones, which is one of your alcohol drug treatment centers. Um, they're, you know, they're very helpful when it comes to that difficult population. But once time is up, then what? So if she's, her time is up once she delivers her baby, so is the plan that um, she'll deliver her baby and automatically that baby is gonna go into the system? Um, so if I could have any, um, any project that I could work on, it would be a, a project that look at um, how to help that population because it's pretty sad when you think about it. When you have um, a, a woman that even if she's not in, even if she's in a state of psychosis, there are times she has her moments of clarity. And so it might be at her moment of clarity, she is reaching out to your agency for some help. And so the answer is we can't help you because your primary is not substance use. And so that would be the project that I would love to work on.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get a, a F for strain from the manualized questions of this interview. I've got two that have kind of come to mind. Um. As a, as a woman of color, I could see these questions being asked uh, in a different way. What effects of the recent racial injustice have you been observing on the people you serve, um, et cetera? So do you have any thoughts or reflections about how some of these questions that we've explored about the pandemic and its impact on the people that are being served that would apply to the racial injustice that's been going on in our country?
1: Well, I would not say that we're seeing that in the population. I mean, you know, of course, it is is something that is um, pressing for people of color. Um, What I will say was that a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to um, go to a training. I think it's REI, the Racial Equity Institute out of Greensboro. That training, what I would say is that black, white, whatever that every person that is in North Carolina should participate in that training because in that training, some of the things that we feel as a person of color see you see me if I'm presenting, I'm always dressed a certain way um, I you know and i I have that mentality because of the, my parents that raised me was that it, they told me that I had to be, um, I had to always dress the particular way. I had to speak a particular way. I had to, um, I just had to work harder than my next white counterpart. Now, I, I, you know, that was the message that I got. And so as we go through this, these times and this, this I mean, it's, it's horrible. And but what we people of color is that we'll say that we've we've been feeling these um, injustices for, for a certain amount of for a long time. Um, but when I coming to our program, the programs that I work for um, because of my the leader that I've had and um, Starling Scott Robbins and um, Flo for many years, um, every woman no matter what her color is, is treated fairly. I, I know that. And I could say for each program that they're in. Um, and, and I think that that makes a difference. You know, um, the, the leadership and understanding that that is uh, people of color, even if you don't recognize it, that there's a, something that we feel different on the inside sometimes because of those things that happen, then they might not happen. I mean, I grew up in a town. I grew up in a town, Asbury Park, New Jersey. So it's on the shore. That's where the boss is from, right? <laughs> so it's well, on what, the shore. One of
0: our participants is from right now. Really? Yeah. What?
1: That's crazy. Mm. I, so um, my town, when I grew up, we went to school with their, we're, we're, we're sandwiched in between some pretty wealthy towns. And so I was next door to this town called Deal. I mean, they were filthy rich and we went to school together. So I never experienced that at school because we were just, we, we had that multicultural thing going on at my school. But when I got to college in Buffalo, New York, <laughs> Uh, I experienced racism like I had never experienced before and and Chris I was oh my god I was I was devastated it happened a number a few times and um and my parents even though they gave us that um my that preparation they didn't prepare me for that so I I will say I'll kind of wrap up that question by saying that your leadership matters the way you lead and how you treat the people that you serve is that what makes, because what happens is when it comes to leadership, we know that it trickled down, it trickles down. So it's just like um, everyone. So if you're at the top, everybody should have that same message. So that means that if your woman at the the front door is not um, trauma informed, then doesn't matter you know, because she might be the first person they see. So it's the same way if you're at the top and you have a very present um, issue with racism, it will trickle down all through your organization.